Amen. One of my favorite all-time songs. There's something about that name. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for your help. Wanted to share with you something that's that you need to. I guess I should have sent out a save the date. That's what. That's the cool thing to do these days. But I want you to save the date for me. March the fourteenth. It's a Thursday evening, seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, during our recent trip to Israel, God spoke something very profoundly to my heart and to another pastor in this community. And the the thing that made it so amazing and so wonderful was that almost word for word, God spoke the same thing to each of our hearts. And what he spoke to our hearts was this, that it's time for us to tear down the walls that have separated us in different denominations and different churches in this community and together provide a united effort to tear down the wall, the, the, the kingdom of darkness in this community. And what God has spoken to our hearts since that time is that we are going to begin an effort, a monthly effort that is going to start on March the 14th. Well, it'll be a, a, each month at a different church in our community, but we're asking all of our area pastors, all of our congregations to just come together for a night, an evening of worship and prayer. Just getting together and and praising God and worshiping God and uniting our hearts and our minds together to do a substantial work for the kingdom of God in this community. We're calling it uh, the Kingdom United, an evening of worship and prayer. It's going to be here at 7 o'clock in the evening. I want you to be a part of it, if at all possible. I know that's the week of spring break, and I know that there are going to be those of you who have obligations elsewhere, but... We're just wanting to get as many people together to show that, you know what, we're not in competition with each other. We are working for the kingdom. It's his church, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when we set out to build our own individual churches, we become more a part of the problem than we are the solution. So I want you to put that on your calendar, and if at all possible, make every effort to be here. It's going to be a wonderful evening. We'll have different worship teams from different churches, and uh, have pastors that are praying specifically for open doors of God's favor in this community. So put that on your calendar, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Second Corinthians chapter number 10. If you would turn with me in your Bibles or on your smartphone app, Second Corinthians Chapter number 10. We've been doing this sermon series within a sermon series for the past couple of weeks. The larger sermon series is what a disciple looks like. But the sermon series within the sermon series is spiritual growth. As being a a major part of what a disciple should look like. We should be followers of Jesus Christ who are growing in his likeness. Every day of our lives, amen? And we've been focused in on this passage in 2 Corinthians as being, as being the model for what spiritual growth looks like. The Apostle Paul says in verse number 3, For although we are walking in the flesh... We do not wage war in a fleshly way, since the weapons of our warfare 
are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, having considered in the past couple of weeks the fact that a disciple, first of all, is one who has allowed Christ to touch his or her heart. And then last week we we talked about that it's not just a matter of having our hearts touched, but having our hearts transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I hope you recall what we gave a title to that process, correcting our stinking thinking. The process of God renewing and transforming us. It's as if every follower of Jesus is like a prisoner of war who has, has just been released from years of captivity. What does that person need? What does that prisoner need? He has to go through a debriefing, so to speak. A time to, to reorient himself so that he can live a, a new life that, that he's now received upon release from captivity. The same is true for us as believers. We, we need to be reoriented in the way that we live our lives. We are no longer to live like we used to live, but we are to live a life that has been touched and transformed by the power of God that will change us from what we have been to what He wants us to be, that will change us and make us look more like Jesus. Prior to coming to Christ, you know, we might have we might have learned how to get along in the world. But we didn't know anything about living like a disciple of Christ. Therefore, we have to choose daily to have our minds renewed. Again, not to, not to talk so much about last week, but last week we, we, we talked about living each day with, with a spirit of repentance. The Greek word was metanoia, a willingness to let God change our mind about any and everything. we got to change the way we used to think. The things that made sense to us before probably aren't going to make sense to us any longer. Why? Because Christ has touched and changed us. So, as we seek to allow Christ to transform our hearts by the renewing of our minds... What's going to happen is we're going to find that there are ways of thinking and feeling and behaving that are not only going to change, but we're going to encounter some of those ways of thinking and feeling and behaving that are going to be more difficult to incorporate into our daily lives than in some other areas. For example, you know, if... if, if, uh, the Spirit of God transformed me and changed me and, and said, well, Terry, you don't need to eat bacon anymore. Now, I'm, I'm just using that as an example. The Lord definitely has not spoken to me about that yet. <laughs> that would probably be more difficult for me than if the Spirit of God says, Terry, you don't any longer need to eat turnips. I wouldn't have any problem giving up turnips. Bacon, it would take some convincing. That's a stupid example. I don't even know why I came up with that. But, but you get the drift. There are going to be some of these areas that are more difficult for us to experience transforming change in 
than in other areas. That's why we have to understand that this process of renewing our minds not only involves correcting our stinking thinking, it also involves the tearing down and the conquering of things that have become strongholds in our life. So let's first define what a stronghold is. And to do that, I want to give you just a, a picture in your mind of a text taken from the Old Testament where the people of God, the Israelites, were getting ready to enter the promised land that God had promised to them. When they came to the borders of the promised land, uh, they knew that it was the inheritance that God had. And that, that inheritance that they had in that promised land of Canaan is, is much like the promise that God has given to each of us to live victorious lives, to live Christ-like lives. That's what he wants to make available to us here. Anybody that thinks that we get saved just so we can punch our ticket to heaven, you're missing out. Trust me. He wants us to be able to live victorious lives for him while we are still here. He wants us to allow his kingdom to come to this earth just as it is in heaven. Amen? And the way that that can happen is as we start living victorious Christian lives. That's the inheritance that he's given to us. Well, back to the Old Testament. In claiming their inheritance, the people of God found that there were some territories that were relatively easy for them to occupy and, to and conquer. But there were other territories that were much more difficult. Why? Because those other territories, much like the city of Jericho, were cities that were surrounded by what is called strongholds. They were walled, fortified cities. Cities that protected them from being conquered by anyone who would want to overtake them. And while taking possession of their inheritance, yeah, it was all due to the power of God, but when it came to overcoming strongholds that were already in that land of Canaan, God's power was needed in very specific and direct ways. Now, you remember, I, I just referenced the city of Jericho. How were the people of Israel going to conquer the city of Jericho and take the land as their possession? Jericho was a walled city. And so the Israelites were confounded. How are we... How, we know God's given this to us, but we're going to have to fight these people. We're going to have to overtake them in order to possess the promised land. So they waited for instruction from God. You know what God's instruction was for taking the city of Jericho? March around those walls every day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around them seven times. And on the seventh time, at a specific point in time, I'm going to give you the instruction to blow your trumpets. And when you do, the stronghold surrounding the city is going to fall down. Now, how many of you would think that's a good earthly plan? That's not the way we would have done it. 
But you can't hope to fight spiritual battles with fleshly weaponry. This was a spiritual situation. And God was saying, if you're going to take the spiritual inheritance that I've promised to you, you're going to have to do it in the way that I tell you to do it. And that way is to be obedient to what I tell you, to march around the city once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And at a certain point on that seventh time around, you're going to blow your trumpets. And when you do, you're going to have the victory. I'm, I, uh, can I just tell you something? If they'd resorted to their own ways, they would have never taken Jericho. Why? Because God needed their obedience, not their might. He needed their obedience, not their willpower. He needs obedience from us. He doesn't need our own strength. He doesn't need our own fleshly weapons. He doesn't need willpower. What he needs from us is our obedience to fight with spiritual weapons things that have kept us from spiritually living in victory. Are you with me? Now, if that imagery that, of that story that I just painted for you gives you a picture of strongholds, perhaps it'll help us to know what Paul is describing for us in that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 that we read earlier. He's telling us that in our lives as disciples of Jesus... We're going to find that there are some areas in the changing of our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior that are going to change fairly easily. Little struggle. There are going to be areas that are going to give up without, without so much as a fight. Matter of fact, go with me if you still have your Bibles open to the book of Romans, chapter number 7. Because here Paul describes for us what this fight looks like for each of us in practical terms. And I'm going to be using... Uh, the message paraphrase to share these passages with you so it won't sound like what you're reading if you don't have the message translation. But listen because he makes it very clear. He says in verse number 14, I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another. Doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But then he goes on to say, but I need something more. For if I know that the law, for, excuse me, for if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. Well, duh. That isn't in the translation. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do that, do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't get, don't result in actions. 
Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Can anybody here identify with this? Listen to what he says. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. I love that. So, a stronghold. Stronghold is very literally a strong hold. Something that is a compulsive habit. That's rooted in a lie that's contrary to the new life that we've been called to live by Jesus Christ. Examples of some strongholds. And this is just a very short list of what we could go on and on in talking about strongholds. But let me give you some. Bitterness. Addictive behaviors. Sexual perversion. Paralyzing grief. Constant worry. Uncontrollable anger, unforgiveness. Now, as I said, I could probably go on listing examples for you, but I'm sure that many of you have something that has already come to your mind that has you in its grip, has control of you. And it's something that you constantly struggle with, that you know isn't right, and and, and you've tried to gain the victory over it, but you just can't seem to win the victory. Anybody here like that? Come on now. This is your day. Why? Because I, this morning, have the key to your victory. In fact, you don't even have to win the victory. Because Jesus Christ has already won it for you. Now that ought to get you excited. The victory has, the battle has already been fought. The victory has already been won. You are complete in Him if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's a great verse that the Apostle Paul gives us in Colossians chapter number 2. Speaking of our relationship with Jesus, Paul says, And you are complete through your union with Christ. He is the Lord over every ruler and authority in the universe. He's already won the victory. He's already won the battle. Victory is yours. You just need to learn how to see it released in your daily experience by the power of the person of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. Now, having said that, I want, I want you to let me go back for just a moment. And I want to talk to you for a moment about the development of strongholds. How, how strongholds get 
find their place in our lives. You know, and as we move forward in the process of having our minds renewed day by day, we're inevitably going to come across some behaviors that are, are rooted in lies that Satan has implanted deep into our minds through some experience that we've had in life. It may be a, a, a specific experience. It may be a, a prolonged experience. But, but Satan has used that opportunity to plant a lie into our mind that will color how we view life and influences how we respond to things. Now, I want you to hear me on this, Christian, because this is for every one of us, and you need to understand this. While Satan planted various types of lies in our minds during the time before we came to Christ, if we're not careful, he can be given permission to plant those same lies into our life even after we've come to saving faith in Christ. Here's how it works. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 27. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give, let me translate that according to my way of thinking. Don't give the devil a foothold. If he gets a foot in the door, he's going to crash it down before too long. And it'll become a stronghold. And when it becomes a stronghold, it has more control or at least as much control over you as does the Holy Spirit. And if you continue to allow that stronghold to reside in your life, eventually the Holy Spirit says, I'm not sharing my dwelling place with anybody. You're either going to have to decide. Are you going to walk in the Spirit or are you going to let the flesh control you with this stronghold? You see how it works. And we, we often give him this little, may not even a foothold, but a toehold in the door. What we need to do is slam it on it. Because if we don't, it'll, become, it'll tend to become more and more prevalent in our, lives, in our lives. Now, Paul tells us that these lies of the enemy basically fall into two categories. The first one is what I will call pretenses. And here's what I mean by that. Pretenses are the root lies that are the reasons for our compulsive wrong behavior. A pretense is a lie that pretends to be the truth. Okay, hold that thought. A pretense is a lie that pretends to be the truth. Um, You know, we live in a fallen world filled with hurting people. And because of that, there are things that happen in this world that cause us pain. Whether we're people of God or whether we're not people of God, there are things in this world that contribute to our brokenness that will cause us pain. And then Satan begins to work through our emotions when that pain becomes hurtful or or we start experiencing brokenness. He starts to work through our emotions to influence the thought life. Now remember, we were going to let God transform our thought life, right? But then these things happen, and Satan begins to throw these little suggestions at us. And, and, and sometimes we have this tendency to start 
to start thinking about these things that he's throwing at us, these lies, by suggesting lies that pretend to offer uh, reasons for our pain or our brokenness. In practical terms, here's how it looks. He supplies the answer to questions that we often ask like, why did this happen to me? Anybody ever ask yourself that question? Why did this happen to me? Or, what did I do to deserve this? You see, real subtle. But he starts introducing and interjecting these thoughts into our mind. And what these lies do is they promote a distorted view of ourself and more importantly, a distorted view of God. Because for those of us who know God, and for those of us that don't allow these thoughts, we know that, hey, bad things happen to good people. Deal with it. We understand that. As long as we live in the world, we're, we know that that stuff's going to happen. But, if we are allowing him that foothold, and he suggests, you know, you're a child of God. These things shouldn't be happening to you. And so, so we start asking ourselves and maybe even asking one another and maybe even going to church and asking our pastor, I've been doing my best to live for Jesus. And then this stuff happens in my life. And it hurts. It's painful. I don't deserve this. See how it works? And that brings us to the second kind of lie. And that's Arguments. These are what I would call those guardian lies, which are designed to keep us from being willing to let the Lord deal with those lies that are the root of our problem. And here's how they play themselves out. Some lies that sound like this. Oh, I'm past that. Don't worry about it, Pastor. I've dealt with that. It's in the past. Or or, or I've forgiven them. Or this thing that I'm holding on to, it's a, that happened a long time ago. I haven't thought about it for years unless I decide to mention it to somebody. Sound familiar? Here, here's some more. These are the ones I hear most often. Well, pastor, I just can't help this area of my life. That's just the way I am. It, I was born that way. That's the way I was brought up. Or... Pastor, it can't be as bad as what you're making it sound because everybody else does it. My personal favorite, pastor, 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 don't worry about this. Don't worry about this habit. It's not that big a deal. I can quit at any time. Heard that one a lot. I think I told you about the guy that Years ago, his wife called me to come over and talk to him because he was on a drunken binge down in their unfinished basement. Walked up, she opened the door to the basement. I walked down the stairs. And here's this guy named Mike. And he's sitting on the floor with puddles of urine and excrement laying all around him. And he says, Terry, I know why you're here, but I can quit at any time. And I'm thinking to myself, if you can quit at any time, this might be a really good time to do that. Now, I didn't tell him that. 
fact is, Mike died of his addiction. Because rather than choosing to quit at any time as he thought he could do, he never gave it to God and died in his addiction. What am I talking about? Am I talking about drinking? Maybe. Am I talking about doping? Yeah, maybe. Am I talking about addiction to pornography? Yeah, maybe. But I'm also talking about things like having a critical spirit. Gossiping about one another. Allowing illicit perversions to come into your life. Holding on to issues of unforgiveness. Thinking that if you forgive somebody, you're going to let them go. You're going to let them off the hook. When the fact of the matter is, the only one that's been on any hook, or the only one that's been in any jail over your matter of unforgiveness all these years, has been you. They may not even be aware of it. They may have forgotten about it. But you're holding on to it. Because you've got something on them. No, you've got something on you. And your unforgiveness, these are not my words by the way, your unforgiveness makes it impossible for God to forgive you. How many of you think that's a pretty big deal? We all need forgiveness, right? If you've made it impossible for God to forgive you by your unforgiveness, it's a stronghold that has you in its grip that keeps you from living the victorious life that Christ wants you to live. Now, if we would be free from these lies that bind, then we have to be willing to reject any excuse that would keep us from being open to God exposing that it is at the root of our behavior and, and allowing him to replace it with his truth. Since the lies that are at the, the root of strongholds were planted there by some experience that we've gone through, let me tell you what, they can only be uprooted and replaced by experiencing God's truth. Again, fighting spiritual battles with spiritual weaponry. The truth of God can tear those strongholds down. That's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. He said, since the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words... Understanding God's word cognitively and logically is not going to get the job done. We have to come to know the truth of God experientially and personally. I've known a lot of people that knew a lot more about the word of God and knew a lot more about God than I do. But they didn't know God. They didn't know him because they'd never had a personal experience with him. They'd never experienced his power to touch and change their life. They were educated beyond their intelligence, as I like to think of it. Yeah, they know a lot. But you have, it's more, 
You can know God and not know. You can know who God is and still not know God. Does that make sense? You have to know Jesus by means of a personal experience with him. That's the only way that real life change can occur in our lives. In New Testament Greek, there's a word that is used to to speak of our coming to know the truth of God by experience and and, and in a personal way. That word is epignosis. Now, you don't need to remember that word, but epignosis means knowledge on top of knowledge or knowledge beyond knowledge. It's this kind of knowledge that's required if we are to be saved. Paul tells his student Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4, God wants everyone to be saved, right? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. John said, or Jesus said in John chapter 5, he's speaking to the religious people of his day, In verse number 38, he says, you don't have his word abiding in you because you don't believe in the one he sent, referring to himself. You pour over the scriptures because you think you find eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Paul, again, in Romans chapter number 10, verse number 2, he says, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Those Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, they wanted everybody to know that they were godly people, and so they would go through all of these things, these rituals, these these things that made them look like they were godly people. Jesus said, here's what I think of you. You're hypocrites, blind guides, and snakes. Because you refuse to accept me, and I am the Word made flesh coming to dwell amongst you. You see, it's possible to know about Christ and yet not know him. And in the same fashion, it's possible for a follower of Jesus, a disciple, to know about victory and not be living in victory. Again, Paul's words to his student, this time in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse number 7. There he says, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why Paul prayed for the believers of his day in the way that he did. Again, he said in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse number 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard this of their love in the Spirit, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. That, my friends, is what a victorious Christian life looks like. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are already in faith. He's saying, I'm praying for you so that you can do these things. Now, concerning strongholds in the lives of believers, again, Paul advises Timothy, this time in chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. He says, they, speaking of the one who believes, should instruct his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance to know the truth. Then they may come to their senses... 
and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Confessing our sins, friends, is vital to being in a position for the Holy Spirit to work in my life. But if confession, listen to me on this, if confession is not accompanied by repentance, what is repentance? Changing one's mind and direction. If it's not accompanied by repentance, then you will find yourself falling back into the same sin over and over and over again. I had that perfected when I was a teenager. I'd come home from doing something stupid. I'd pray and ask God to forgive me, knowing full well that the next night I was going to go do the same thing over again. I was good at confessing. I got an A in confessing. But I flunked repentance really bad. God forgives dead sin. In other words, when you come to confession, if you come to God in confession, you are coming with a sincere heart that says, God, I'm confessing this to you because I do not want to do it any longer. Right? And God, I need your help to stop me from going down this road so that I can start going down this road that leads to life everlasting. Confessing just so you can get through the night and asking forgiveness so that you can get through the night hoping that Jesus won't come before you wake up the next morning is not what I'm talking about. I needed to not only confess my sin, but I needed to have repentance of my sin. You see, salvation doesn't come without repentance. It's a prerequisite to being saved. You must repent. We need to allow God's power to work on our behalf in a very specific and direct way. We need to let the light of God's truth expose the darkness. Even back in the Old Testament, remember that character named Job? He said in chapter 28, He says, God will bring hidden things to light. How many of you have experienced that? God brings hidden things to light. Now, let me move on. There's a very important scripture passage in Ephesians chapter number 3 that I'm going to close with. Paul said, For this reason... I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. How much is that? Quite a bit. To be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. And that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of 
of God. How many of you would like to be filled with the fullness of God? We all would. How do you become filled with the fullness of God? You take down the strongholds that are occupying territory in your heart. How do you take down the strongholds? You do them with God's weaponry. You, in essence, don't do them because God's already done them. You just need to ask God to appropriate His victory that He's already won into your life, into your dwelling place. Paul said in Romans 8, this again is the message, God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. Do you know who you really are this morning? Do you know who God is? We know who He is and we know who we are, Paul said. He is our Father and we are His children. Hallelujah. And I close with a rather lengthy story, but you need to hear it. Back in 1954, a Presbyterian minister and professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. His name was Robert Boyd Munger. He wrote this wonderful sermonette entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Now, again, it's rather lengthy, but I want to share it with you, and I want you to listen carefully. Because he's painting an analogy here of Christ taking residence in our heart, and that residence looks like a lot of our homes that we live in. So he's painting this picture for us, and here's what he says. He says, one evening, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart, and what an entrance he made. Something happened at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He filled the emptiness with his own wonderful fellowship. And in the joy of this new relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home in my heart. And then he said, so Jesus, let me show you around my home where you're going to dwell. And they started in what he called the study. The first room was the study. This room of the mind is a very small room with very thick walls. But it's a very important room. It's the control room of my house. Jesus entered with me and looked around at the books in my bookcase, the magazines on my table, and the pictures on my walls. And as I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. I'd not ever felt self-conscious about this before, but now I was embarrassed because there were books that his eyes were too pure to behold. On the table were magazines that a Christian had no business reading. The pictures on the walls, imaginations and thoughts of the mind, were shameful. So I turned to Jesus and I said, I know that this room needs to be cleaned up and made over. Will you help me? Jesus said, I'll be glad to help you. First, take everything you're reading and looking at which are not helpful, pure, good, and true, and throw them out. Now put on your shelves the books of the Bible. Fill the shelves with Scripture and meditate on them day and night. And as for the pictures, you've already seen them, so you're going to have difficulty controlling these images in your mind. But I have something that will help. 
And he handed to me a full-size portrait of himself. And he said, hang this in the center of the room where it draws the most attention. I did, and I've discovered that when my thoughts are centered upon Christ, impure thoughts will back away. He's helped bring my thoughts under control. We left the study and proceeded to the dining room. We went into the dining room, the place of appetites and desires, and I said, this is a favorite room of mine, and I know you'll be pleased with what I serve here. He sat at the table and asked, what's on the menu? I said, my favorite dishes, money, academic degrees, stocks, newspaper articles talking about my fame and my fortune. Told him that what I liked was secular fare. But when I placed it before him, he wouldn't eat it. I said to him, what's the trouble? What's the problem? And he answered, I have food to eat that you don't know about. If you want food that satisfies, do the Father's will and stop seeking your own pleasures. Please him. Because then and only then that food will satisfy. And then he gave me a taste of doing God's will. And what flavor it had. There's no food like it in the world. We left the dining room and went to the living room. This room was intimate and comfortable. I liked it because it had a hot fireplace. It had overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He said to me, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often because it's secluded and quiet and we can fellowship together. Well, as a relatively new Christian, I was thrilled about this. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in close companionship. He looked at me and he said, I promise you I will be here early every morning. Meet here and we will start our day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room and he would take one of the books off the shelves and we would open it and read it together. And he would unfold to me from that book the wonder of God's saving truths. And my heart sang as he shared the love and the grace that he felt toward me. These were wonderful times. But little by little, under the pressure of my responsibilities, my busyness, our time together began to be shortened day by day. Why this happened, I'm not real sure. I thought I was too busy to spend regular time with Jesus. It wasn't intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. And finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to eventually miss a day every now and then. Urgent matters would crowd out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. I remember one morning rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way, and I passed by the living room, and I noticed the door was open, And looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus sitting there. And suddenly in dismay, I thought to myself, here he is, my guest. I have invited him into my heart and he's come as my savior and friend and yet I'm neglecting him in this most important room of my heart. I stopped and turned and hesitantly went in with downcast glance. I said, Jesus, forgive me. Have you been here every morning? He said, yes. I told you I would be here to meet with you every morning. Remember, 
I love you. I've redeemed you at a great cost. I value our fellowship. And even you cannot keep the quiet time when you know it helps you. So if you're not going to do it for you, at least do it for mine. The truth that Christ desires my companionship that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. So I advise the rest of you, don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find time with your Bible and prayer so that you may be together with him. We left the living room and headed to the workroom. Once there before long, he asked me the question, is this your workroom? Well, out in the garage of the home my, of my heart, I had this workbench and I had some equipment, but I wasn't doing much with it. Once in a while, I'd play around with a few little gadgets, but I wasn't producing anything substantial. I took him out there and he looked over the workbench and he said, well, this is quite well furnished. What are you producing with your life for the kingdom of God? And he looked at one or two little toys that I'd thrown together on the bench and he held one up to me and he said, is this the sort of thing that you're doing for other Christians? Well, I said, Lord, I know it isn't much, but after all, I don't seem to have the strength or the skill to do anything more. Would you like to do better, he asked. Certainly, I replied. He said, okay, let me have your hands. And now you relax in me and let my spirit work through you. I know that you're unskilled. I know that you're clumsy. I know that you're awkward. But the Holy Spirit is the master workman. And if he controls your hands and your heart, he can work through you. Stepping around behind me and putting his great strong hands in her mind, he held the tools in his skilled fingers and began to work through me. And the more I relaxed and trusted him, the more he was able to do with my life. We left the workroom and headed to the rec room. He asked me if I had a rec room where I went to have fun and fellowship. Honestly, I was hoping he wouldn't ask about that. There were certain associations and activities that I wanted to keep for myself. And one evening I, when I was on my way out of the house with some of my buddies, he stopped me with a glance and he said, Are you going out? And I replied, Yes. He said, Good, I'd like to go with you. Oh, I answered awkwardly. I, I don't think, Jesus, that you'd, you'd really enjoy where we're going. So let's go out together tomorrow night. Tomorrow night we'll go to a Bible study at church. But tonight I have this other appointment. And he said, I'm sorry. I thought that when I came into your home, we were going to do everything together to be close companions. I just want you to know that I'm willing to go with you. Well, I mumbled as I slipped out the door. We'll go someplace tomorrow night. That evening, I spent some of the most miserable hours of my life. I felt rotten. What kind of friend was I to Jesus, deliberately leaving him out of my life, doing things and going places that I knew very well he wouldn't enjoy? So when I returned later that evening, there was a light in his room, and I went up to talk it over with him. And I said, Lord, I've learned my lesson. I know now that I can't have a good time without you. From now on, we're going to do everything together. And then we went down into that rec room, and he transformed it. He brought to me new friends, new toys, and new things to enjoy. Laughter and music have been ringing throughout the house like never before. One day when I came home, I found him waiting at the door for me. 
An arresting look was in his eye, and as I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here, and it's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. And as soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there in the hall landing, just a few feet square. And in that closet, behind lock and key that only I carried, I had one or two little personal things that I didn't want anyone else to know about. And certainly I didn't want Jesus to see them because I knew they were dead. I knew they were rotting things left over from my old way of life. But I wanted them so much for myself that I was afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up the stairs with him. And as we climbed them, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door of the closet and I became angry. It's the only way I can put it. I'd given him access to my library. I'd given him access to my dining room. I'd given him access to my living room, the rec room, the work room. And now he's asking me about this little two-foot square closet. And I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give Jesus the key to this closet. Well, somehow he could read my thoughts. And he said, if you think I'm going to stay up here on this second floor with this smell all around me, you're mistaken. I'll just go out on the porch and leave you and your house to yourself. And then I saw him start down the stairs. Now, when one comes to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense him withdrawing from you. So I had to give in. I said, okay, okay. I'll give you the key. But you're going to have to open the closet. And you're going to have to clean it out because I don't have the strength to do it. He said, just give me the key. Authorize me to take care of that closet and I'll do exactly what you want me to do. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it walked over to the door, opened it, entered, and took out all the putrefying stuff that was in there rotting. And he threw it all away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it with a new paint. And it was all done in just a moment's time. And I can't even begin to describe to you what victory and release has come as a result of having that dead thing out of my life. Munger closed his story with this. He said, a thought came to me, Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the management of my whole house and operate it for me just as you did in that closet? Would you just take the responsibility to keep my life what it ought to be? And with that, his face lit up as I'd never seen it light up before. He said, I'd love to. In fact, that's what I want to do. You can't be a victorious Christian in your own strength. Let me do it through you and for you. That's the way. But then he added slowly, I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. So dropping to my knees, I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I've been a host. But from now on, I'm going to be the servant And you're going to be the owner and the master of this house. 
And so I ran downstairs as fast as I could to my strong box where I took out the title deed to my house, describing its assets and liabilities, location and situation. And I eagerly signed that title over to him alone for time and for eternity. Here, I said, here it is. Everything that I am and everything that I have, it's yours forever. You now run this house, and I'll just remain here as your servant and your friend. And he closed with one last sentence. Things are different now that Jesus has settled down and made his home in my heart. Would you bow with me, please? Please, in, in respect to everyone and everything that's going on around you this morning, please close your eyes. No one looking around. I just want to ask you a simple question. Do any of you have a heart with rooms that look like those that Munger just described? If so, Jesus wants to clean it up. Musicians, would you come please? He wants to clean it up this morning. He knows that the weapons of your warfare in trying to win spiritual battles are only successful when they come from the throne room of God. You can't allow you can't allow God to do anything but spiritual surgery on your heart to identify those lies that you've been telling yourself and telling God. He needs to identify those strongholds that you've been in denial about. And he wants to give you the victory that he's already won in cleaning up your house and making it fit for him to live in. All you have to do is surrender to the spirit that lives within you. All that you need to do is respond to the urges that at this very moment he's bringing to your awareness. Things that are not fit to be placed in his place of residence. He wants to tear down every stronghold has a hold over your life. And I know, friends, I know, I know as well as I'm standing here that most of those things in this body, in this room this morning are quite likely not the big three, the sex, the alcohol, or the drugs. There may be some, I don't know. But I'm guessing that more likely there are things like bitterness and unforgiveness. Things that will absolutely keep you not only from victory in this life, but it will keep you out of heaven. Unless you confess it to God and repent of it before Him. 
with your head still bowed and your eyes closed. You're here this morning. And you say, Pastor Terry, you've been reading my mail. <laughs> you've been talking about me this morning, at least in some area. And I want Jesus' help this morning. Just raise your hand real quickly. Anyone, anywhere, yes. Hands all over. Keep going, keep going. The Spirit of God is moving. Yes, I see those hands. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, because you've already won our victory. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us and and convicting us this morning, helping us to see ourselves in light of God's holiness, showing us all those things that don't stack up to the place that a holy God would desire to live in. And now, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do your sovereign work in the life of every hand that was raised this morning and even in in the lives of those who, for whatever reason, didn't raise their hand but needed to. Give us the victory that we so desperately need in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet, please? We spoke earlier today of the power that's available in Jesus' name. I can't fix any of these problems for you, but I know one who can, and that's Jesus Christ. These altars are open. I would love, love, love to have the opportunity to pray with you about these areas of your life, these areas of your heart that Jesus desires to live in. As we sing this song about the power in the name of Jesus.